Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor at the Altamont Enterprise, and we've traveled today. I would like to say it's Rich Goodhart's Gilderland Home, but I really feel like we're in a different time and different place altogether. We have musical instruments from around the world surrounding us, and the ambience just doesn't feel like here and now. So thank you so much for having us. And we're going to talk about Rich's music. And I just wish you could tell us a little about how you became a musician. Hmm, that's going way back. Okay. Um, we had a piano here as, as a child, so I would mess around on the piano a little bit. Uh, in elementary school, we had the opportunity to pick up an instrument I took up clarinet, played that for a few years, was very horrible at it, didn't practice very much. Um, actually had experiences with the music um, education scene in the schools that was a little bit traumatic for me. So when I got out of it, I could get, get when I could get out of it, I got out of it. Traumatic in the sense of what? Um, specifically one... Uh, Orchestral director, I think, in the middle school. Actually, yeah, I was in the middle school. Just a lot of pressure. It was. It seemed more about him needing, needing a clarinet in his his orchestra than about what I wanted to do. You know, there was a lot of pressure. I I, I was never very good with being pushed into doing something that didn't feel right to me. Um, it was one of those situations though, where when I was in go to school, if he was coming down the hall, I would have to like try to avoid him. Because, oh, dear. So, so did this put you off the path to music for a while? And well, what got you back on? Well, very shortly off the path. I, I mean, I really wasn't on the path then because it was not <laughs> a, a path that was going anywhere. But soon after that, uh, I found a friend of mine down the street who played guitar. And we uh, started playing together and started learning, learning music off records. And and I convinced um, my parents to give me an organ, too, an electric organ, which came with several lessons, basic keyboard lessons. And I had like the, the four free lessons and I got maybe 10 more lessons. So I learned the basics. And then we started teaching ourselves music. You know, Led Zeppelin uh, was a lot, a lot of what we did. And, and then the Allman Brothers and, and eventually got into art rock, playing Genesis and Gentle Giant and Yes, you know, these things. This was in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and what got you into world music? And tell us really what world music is. Okay. World music is a debatable uh, title. Um, some people consider it music of indigenous cultures from other parts of the world, but What's other? You know, it depends where you're standing. Mm -hmm. I think there's world music in America. Um, it's 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 music that's not popular music that generally has roots in cultures. You know, whatever those cultures are, they're they're ancient roots, pre-recording, pre pre-making records to sell, and pop radio sorts of things. So there's music's from all over the world, and uh, I got into that. I would have to credit our wonderful radio station, WRPI, in Troy, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the 70s and early 80s. You know, if you tuned into that station, they just had 
so much, so so much music, all kinds of music. It was, it was such a, a treasure chest of sound. Because I was going to ask, mm. how do you learn about world music when you're here? <laughs> in, in so Gilderland. yeah, right. Well, that yeah, that turned me on to things. Yeah. Um, one of the things that turned me on to was the group Oregon. Mm-hmm. If you don't, know if you know them, they were um, a world. They were considered the godfathers of the New Age movement, but they were definitely not New Age. These were classically trained, jazz-trained musicians. Colin Walcott was the percussionist who played tabla, the classical Indian hand drums. He played sitar, that stringed classical instrument Mm -hmm. that Ravi Shankar um, popularized in the Western world. George Harrison popularized it because he... George connected with Ravi and then used it in the Beatles. And and so I heard those things on the radio, on, on RPI. So that got me into listening to Oregon. Then in the early 80s, Oregon was coming to play at the Troy Music Hall, another one of our wonderful treasures in this area. Yeah, it is. And I had, um, somebody had loaned me tablas at that point, and I was just practicing. And these are the Indian drums? Yeah, those, those things right over there. Okay. The silver the silver one and the one next to it. And he's pointing it. to the corner mm. where there are two beautiful sort of half spheres, three-quarter spheres with, what is that on the outside? Some kind of, like, rope or... Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. leather strapping okay. that uh, ties the head down, and then there's the wood blocks. The one on the right there is a, is a wooden drum. You have one wooden one, and then you have the bigger metal one, and you hammer those wooden blocks down to, to tighten the head and tune the drum. So Colin played those, and I, I had been uh, studying or practicing for a few months, and so I went to the show. Before the show, I went backstage to find him and to see if he knew anybody who played tabla. That was gutsy. Yeah, well, <laughs> gotta go for it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I found him. And well, well, see, this is the thing: if you tune in, and this ties into the sound healing work that I do as well, but we can get to that. Uh, there's a magic in the world, and some people, you know, the magic may mean certain things to certain people, use whatever word you want, but if you, you know, it's, you can manifest things through, through whatever you want to call it, and I found that when I want to find somebody or I want to connect with somebody like that, it's amazing how perfectly it happens. So I went backstage. I had never been backstage at any concert before. I was in my early 20s, but there was no security guards. So I just walked backstage, and I'm finding my way in the back halls of the Troy Music Hall. And just as I'm walking down a hall, steps out of a doorway, Colin Walcott, the man I was looking for. You know, not somebody else in the band, yeah. not a producer, not, not a, anybody. Colin just steps out, and there we are standing face to face. So um, so I asked him, uh, told him why I was looking for him, and asked him if he knew anybody who taught tabla within within a commutable 50, 70-mile distance of Albany. And he thought for a minute, and he said, no, I can't think of any anybody, but I live out near Oneonta if you want to come, come and study with me. So did you do that? Yeah. Oh. Well, I was like, well, you know, you're only my idol. <laughs> You've only inspired me into this whole new world. And if you're the best you can come up with, if that's all you got is you, well, okay, I'll go. And so you commuted that distance, like, weekly, or? Well, um, that concert was in the fall, October or November. He was still on the road till January. 
Um, but he, he said that, you know, call him in the beginning of January after the New Year. So I did. I went out. Uh, first time I went out there, you know, this is driving out to Oneana, out I-88. And then he actually lives in the town of Meredith. So it's another 14 or 15 miles off the exit. And it was snowing. And I, I, I hardly going to drive down the street to Price Chopper when, it's, when there's four or five, six inches of snow on the ground. But I drove out there because I was in my early 20s and I had the opportunity to study with Colin. And uh, and I did, and I studied with him through till October, mid October of that year. And then they were going on tour again, the group Oregon. And actually, their next show was at the Troy Music Hall. The first show of the tour was at the Troy Music Hall. So I saw him there again. Um, saw him after the show, and then they continued to tour, and they went to Europe. And he got, uh, yeah, he got killed in um, an accident on the Autobahn in Germany. Oh, gosh. So I studied with him for that one year. Wow, what a pivotal year for you. Yeah. Gosh. So after that, how how did your journey unfold? What what did you do Mm. next with music? Well, I was very much into playing the tabla, into world music, and Mm -hmm. I I knew um, I had gone to SUNY for a couple of years for music, but I, I didn't graduate there. I just took like two years of study there. And uh, I think at that point I was out, not at school, working again, and uh, knew I wanted to continue. So I was looking into things and um, looking into schools, and I ended up going to the California Institute of the Arts for a couple of years. And they have a world music program. And so there I got uh, a lot more study, different kinds of hand drums, and playing in African ensembles, and Javanese gamelan ensemble, picking up instruments from other other students there, from uh, the teacher John Bergamo, who was my mentor there. Um, and it just keeps growing. And you produced several of your own albums, writing your own music, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the new one I did is my seventh album, I believe. And what has led you now to do Healing with Sound? How did that come about? Well, even going back to the early 80s, even before I went to, to CalArts, I was, I, was always drawn, I was always drawn to the consciousness transforming aspects of music. So even in the 70s as a teenager, when I was listening to Yes, you know, the band Yes, um, I, uh, you know, they did these grand works, Close to the Edge, one side of an album, 18-minute work, next album, Tales from Topographic Oceans, double album, Double vinyl, four pieces on the whole album. You know, four long 20-minute, 20 20-minute-plus 20 pieces. And you really went on a journey. It took you into a, another world. You know, like you, you mentioned here, coming into my space here, that you feel like you're not quite in Gildeland. Right, and also not in this current time period. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, I, I like that. I, I, li- yeah. I like that that's your response because... Uh, I, I like that what it is that I am that gets expressed in all of this takes you into a realm and a time that isn't necessarily what current. current. <laughs> yeah. Well, so is there a commonality between these instruments, like across cultures? Do you find certain things that are the same, or do you have to learn all different techniques and all different you know, ways of being musical? Mm, interesting question. 
Yeah, there's a similarity. I mean, I, I find the similarity because it's me playing them. So if I'm playing the Deuce and Goni here, for instance, this... Okay, now, I, don't, I want to describe this for our listeners, and I don't know how. It's... Um, a trapezoidal box on the bottom of this beautiful wood that's kind of inlaid with symbolic, I don't know what they're symbols of, and they're cutout shapes, and then there's a long bamboo. Is that a bamboo? bamboo? Yeah. And on the top is, it looks tribal. It's, um, Buzz. it's pierced, uh, metal pierced with rings, and yeah. Where is that from? Well, th- this is... This particular one that I'm holding was made by some white guy in upstate New York. Okay. <laughs> um, not far from where you're sitting. <laughs> uh, but it's it's traditionally from Gambia, the one over there by the um, by the chair, the the body. Whereas this was you mentioned is the trapezoidal box. The body on that is a gourd, a large gourd with a goat skin on it, and that's a traditional one that comes from Gambia. This one I, I made. I happen to be that white guy. Oh, you made this? Yes, I made oh, this. Oh, so you make instruments as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And as you can see, it's basically exactly the same as that instrument except for the body. But even, you know, the top is the similar. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the the way the bracing here is, the bridge. Um, difference, I have tuning pins here. Uh-huh. Makes it a lot easier to tune. That one is just the rope at the top. You have to tie it and move it into place. So how do you know how to build an instrument? Um, you look at it and you figure it out and you get out some tools. <laughs> um, I mean, this is all very, you know, you you just look at it. You look at that and you make what that is. Except because I made the a thing body with different. traditional music, I thought, and I could be wrong, you can correct me, was that it was passed on. I interviewed in this series a... Um, Native American flute maker, and you know he made it seem like something that was passed along, <laughs> the way you'd pass along a myth or a song or something. But you're able to just yeah. look at the physical structure of it and yeah, create yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It would be um, nice if I had an elder who made these and showed me. But it's really these instruments are pretty simple, you know, and. Traditionally, yeah, traditionally, particularly in Africa, you make your own or somebody, you know, somebody in your family or in the village makes them. So they all have idiosyncrasies. So do you have a different relationship with an instrument that you've made because you've made it? Does it... Yeah. um, I'm very possessive about it. I don't want to lose it. I don't want to damage. You know, it's like a child and you want it to be with you your whole life. You don't want it to to die young. But it's um, the music on it. You know, you said about commonalities. I did have someone, you know, that that particular instrument was gotten for me by a man named Fode Musa Suso, who's from Gambia. He's a Mandingo Griot, which is, a, you know, like, like the folk singers. Uh, Dusingoni means hunter's guitar or hunter's lute. And the hunter's instrument, they would play their songs on them and sing and... Well, did it have anything to do with hunting, or was it just... Well, well the instrument itself, you didn't take the instrument hunting, but uh, you would say your, sing your Let's Go Hunting songs, songs on okay. it. You know, not, not to mock it, I don't... You no, know, but no, it's, just, um, yeah. So, so he showed me the basics of playing it, you know, how you hold it and play it. It's a, just It's a six-stringed harp lute. It's a harp in that it's open strings that are plucked, they're not fretted, and it's a lute because it has a neck 
in a bridge on a soundboard. So it's sort of a hybrid instrument, and you just do. Is that a traditional song, or is that something you made up yourself, or how how does it? Well, the first part, the Hey Ya Ho Ya, is is one of my pieces. It's on one of my records uh-huh. on a record called Earth Spiral Water Sound. I like long titles. Uh, yeah, there's a poster on the yeah. wall that I had noted as I came in, and I I love the name. It's an album. Never give a sword to a man who can't dance. And Rich was telling me how when he was marketing these, people were saying, you need short titles. And he stuck with the ones that meant something to him. And Yeah, yeah, yeah it means something to me. And, and people like it. it. It actually stands out from the crowd of, of generic or simple titles. Yeah. Um, so also, when I came in, he was showing me bowls. Could you show us or make sounds in some of these bowls and tell us about how you came to get them and what you do with them? Sure, let me let me get a couple out. Okay, and he has all about his studio. <laughs> so many different instruments; it's hard to see. I when I walked in, I would have thought these were bowls, like you would have a salad bowl, because they're bowls sort of all over. But no, they're actually instruments. And one of them that he got out is an antique from the Himalayas. And I'm hoping he will sound that for us. So this bowl, I don't know how to describe it, except it's very simple. And it's, um, is it brass? Is uh, it made out of brass? Bronze. It's bronze. bronze. It's metal bronze. And these are Himalayan bowls. They're often called Tibetan bowls, but they're not just from Tibet. They can come from other places in the Himalayas. They're often called singing bowls, Himalayan singing bowls. Uh you mentioned about being a salad bowl. Well, I read the story some years ago that when you know the British were st- first going there, going to the Himalayas or whoever it was, Westerners, and they would go to the temples and these bowls were there, and they were at, they would ask them what what are they what do you use them for? They just say rice, put rice in them. But they said then later on. When they got to trust certain people, they would tell them that they're, you know, meditation bowls. And so they disguise their true intentions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, pretty elaborate, pretty, a lot of work. This is all hand hammered. This is about a 200-year bowl. That's all made by hand. Um, you know, it's a lot of work for a, for a rice bowl. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But they're... Um, they're used for meditation, and they're amazing, I think, at, at transforming your state of consciousness, bringing you into an alpha state, you know, like turning off your thinking mind, taking you into a very meditative state. Uh, this ball, you know, I don't know how it'll come across on the air, but when you're in the room with it... 
to interrupt the sound. It, it, the air is vibrating around us, and Rich is using different mallets um, to strike the bowls. And I don't know what the the heft of them is. is it yeah, different it, materials or different weights that makes the difference? It's, it's the different weights. So this being a heavier one, you get more of the lower tone, more yeah. full. And is it where you strike the bowl seems different too? Yeah, but you're just doing it on the edge, really. Yeah. See, this one's brighter. Yeah. So tell us how they're used in the temples and how people use them now for meditation. What what exactly happens? Yeah, let me just set this down. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame to talk uh, over I, I know. it because I, the, I, I, the sound problem. just hangs, and I feel like we should just sit and wait for it to quiet itself, but. I was wondering how these bowls are used for meditation. Uh, well, like we just did, just hit okay. them and play them. I mean, when I do my sound sound healings, shamanic sound medicine uh, offerings, you know, I'll do them. I'll do one on one sessions with people, but I often do more often do events, you know, for a group of people and. I use a lot of things. I have the bowls. I'll have like seven or eight bowls set up. My gong. I have a really beautiful Native American drum, Native American flutes I play. You know, the Dusangoni, other instruments, the Cosmosonic Trance Banjo. Um, I saw a video yeah. that you sent of that. Tell us a little about that and how that works. Okay. Do you want me to tell you about the... the, the you asked about the bowls? Using yes. The bowls? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll tie it all in together. Okay. Great. Uh well, so I use them, you know, like we just played them. You can just hit it and just sit with it. And, and that alone, you know, if you just have one bowl. So you you have like a group of people and yeah. they're sitting and they're just closing their eyes and listening? Closing their eyes, comfortable in meditation okay. and listening and going on a journey with the sound, which, you know, will be a very multidimensional journey because I'm using all these instruments but say when it comes to the bowls, then I'll be I may play the bowls for fifteen minutes or so, ten, fifteen minutes. <clears throat> and there'll be, you know, a number of them, seven or eight of them I'll have set up and I'll gently play between them and create a a movement of music with it. And but I mean you can just use one bowl instead of so it's different every time. It's not like music as we think of it where you It's have, written out. No, it's not written right. out. It's, yeah. it's, you create it as it's happening in yeah. the moment. But if you just have one bowl, you can also just drone with it and then... So he's now using the other end of his mallet, which looks like wood, and is making a much different yeah. sort of circular motion. That and then you can sing with it.
hate to interrupt. Well, the, I know, it's but, like your voice is mm. harmonizing with the notes and they're kind of the frequency is meshing. It's very, do the other, do the people that are meditating and taking this in, do they also sing or is it just? Uh, I will do that in, within, you know, an evening if I'm doing a sound medicine for an hour and a half or whatever, it, however long it goes on for. I often, you know, invite them at some point. It may not be with the bowls. It may be, we may have a chant going with the deuce and goni or with the, with the drum. And are they all without mm. language? Because the ones that you've done yeah. are, yeah, so they're universal. They yeah. don't exist in any particular word structure. Yeah, they're, particularly if you're doing a, a, a meditation or you're going into a theta or alpha brain state, you know, the kind of altered state of consciousness where you're not in your thinking mind and you're in your waking dream world kind of mind, using words with meanings is really counterproductive to it. Sort of interrupts the yeah, flow. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. so how did you start doing this? Like, do you have to be trained to do this? Or is this something just like building an instrument? You you look at it and figure it <laughs> out. Well, sound healing and sound medicine is really ancient practices found in cultures all over the world. Um, on one of my albums, Don't Have It at Hand, my previous album... Shaman Mirror Medicine Tree, there's like a stick figure on the cover, and uh, <clears throat> not that stick figure, a different one. And uh, it's actually a prototype of the Chinese language, the pictog- pro- prototype pictogram in the Chinese language. This this was from like three, 400 to 1000 BC era, and it's the image for medicine. And that image is a combination of this character, which is the image for music, and these other little characters that are the image for plants. So so together, medicine is made of music and plants. Yeah, music and, you know, like herb, herbs, herbal yeah. plants. So that's, that's like 3,000 years ago, at least 3,000 years ago. That was considered primary elements of healing in China. Um, you find it all over, you know, shamanic, the shaman's, Shaman, that word actually just comes from Siberia. It really relates to a certain tribe of people in Siberia. It's become like a pan-cultural word. You know, we talk about South American shamans mm-hmm. or whatever. They're not, quote, shamans. It's, you know, that, that word has become the pan-cultural designation. But there are the native medicine peoples that are found all over the world. And most of them use sound in some way. You know, whether it's drum or chanting or rhythm or melody, sound has all been part of it. And um, I got into it, you know, I mentioned earlier being turned on by Yes in the kind of music that took me into other states of consciousness. Then in the early 80s, I found a book called Through the Music to the Self, which at that time there was not a lot of spiritual contemporary sound healing books, but that talked about these things. And then, like anything wonderful in the world, one thing leads to another, to another. You find out more. You find somebody who's practicing it. Uh, It wasn't until the 90s, mid-90s, when I met a woman, Sarah Benson, who was actually mentoring and teaching people sound healing work. I ended up working with her for 10 years. And where is she located? Well, she was located in uh, Massachusetts, in 
um, Charlemont, Massachusetts. She passed away 10 years ago. So I basically worked with her from 96 to the end of 2006. Because it was like, excuse me, when I was asking you about learning about music from all over the world without having been there, and the same thing that you're saying, it goes back through centuries and ages and cross cultures, but how do you (laughs) grasp it? And so you had this Sarah Benson is sort of a mentor, and then you just create from there using different instruments that seem to yeah. further the process? Well, well when I, I met her, I was, <coughs> I was uh, <coughs> part of a, a week-long workshop at the Abode of the Message in New Lebanon, New York. And it was a sacred arts week, and I knew the guy who, was, who produced it, and he was one of the teachers. And he brought me in as a guest, like assistant musician, and then I also taught a drumming circle or let led a drumming circle as part of the you know part of the offerings that week and Sarah was there and so I met her and uh and then soon after that she invited me to come and study with her and it was a classic case of when you're ready the teacher appears <laughs> you know that's yeah. one of those spiritual yes, right. things so she appeared and she invited me and, and said I was ready to you know study with her basically and uh so that first time when I was going over to her place, it's about a two-hour drive from here, I was on the phone with her getting her directions, and then I said, well, what should I bring? And she says, oh, you don't need to bring anything. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I and mean, we were doing sound healing, right? You know, I have instruments and things. She says, oh, no, this is all about the voice. And I said, I don't use my voice. And she laughed and said, oh, you will. <clears throat> and you do and now. And I do. And I yes, do now. And yeah. even what I've just done here, I'm not warmed up. I haven't. Um, I was out this morning going, doing some grocery shopping, and I was singing in the car and thinking, I haven't used my voice in a couple of weeks. And I have an event on Saturday that I need to be warmed up for. So <clears throat> it opens my, when I get into it, you know, yeah. it will open up a lot more. My voice will. And there's a lot of different sound I may use it melodically, but I may just be making sound that isn't, you know, what someone would call musical. There's a lot of ways to use the voice. And so Sarah's training, you know, her the study with her, and then we became collaborators and cohorts. We would do events together. Um, but all of the work was through the voice. But she also played flute. Um, she had some bowls. She played piano. Uh, she had a drum, rattles. So she used that, and she always encouraged my instrument use. So we would use the instruments when we would do our sound medicine work, but the core work was always with the voice. And and this leads up to something that um, I, I think is a really significant part for anybody who really wants to get into sound healing or considers themselves a sound healer. I can get these bowls, these incredible antique bowls, um, gongs, I have a gong over there. You, you know, a lot of people are buying gongs now. You can get these instruments and you can hit them all you want and they'll make their sounds. But it's about more than just hitting some external instrument. You could still be, you know, you could be not well. <laughs> I want to be careful what I say online, on, mm-hmm. on, on the air. But, you know, you could be a very ill person and have a bad diet and... I mean, just not in touch with things, or you could be a heroin addict, and you could still hit the bowl. But 
what thing that I got from Sarah was that to you need to do the work on yourself first. You need to clear out your own internal space, heal your own internal wounds, get over those fears and things like like I had. I said I didn't use my voice. The idea of using my voice in music was so foreign to me. Um, and so the work was was that you would you would sound, you would go into all the places in your mental, emotional, physical body and encounter wounds and blockages and repressed places and open them up. And the thing is, with your voice, there's no escaping. This is something that's an essay of hers that I have in one of my books. Uh, The first line is something like, and there is no hiding in the sound of your voice. It contains your life, you know, your fears, your wounds, your joys, um, all of your emotions. And it's the way into your energy body, most direct way and the most direct way out, which we knew as children, you know? Yeah, well, so many ideas are going on in my head as you're talking. One is I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a Sikh leader, and all of their services are sung. Uh-huh. And he talked about the spirituality of the voice. And then I just recently also read a study about how since so many of us now communicate through texts or through emails and the voice is not present and it leads to all kinds of uh polarization and misunderstanding because you can't you can read a voice but you can't you know read text in that way but so you mentioned this session you're going to have at the gilderland public library on saturday just give um people an idea of if they go what they might expect will happen and does this healing can you go for one session and have it make a difference, or is it something that you have to, you know, sort of regularly partake in to yeah. have it um, okay. make a difference? Yeah, well, I'm doing uh, this coming Saturday, December 16th at 10.30 in the morning. I'll be at the Gilderland Public Library. It's a free event for participants to come to. Uh, it's just a one hour. Usually when I do my events, like I did one um, just, just a couple, three weeks ago, I think, approximately at Albany Complementary Health, which is also in Gilderland. Uh, just since this is a Gilderland area uh, broadcast, it's a place near the corner of 155 and Western Avenue. And there's a, a studio there, a Qigong studio called Albany Complementary Health. So if I do that, it's it's two hours total time. This is going to be one hour. So it's more of an introductory sort of thing. I'll talk 20 minutes to half an hour, uh, prelude intro, talk about the work, and then there'll be approximately a half an hour sound healing, shamanic sound medicine. I like to call what I do shamanic sound medicine since it's... The work takes you into a deep meditation and it takes you into a realm, a state of consciousness that we all have access to that is like the waking dream world. It's not just one daydreaming, but you can be conscious in it. The ultimate practice is to be aware and awake in it, yet you're no longer just sitting in a room. You know, you're, you're allowed to go in your mind on a journey, you know, which we all do. Uh, but in that journey, you can counter, you have access to states of mind that are not local to space or time, meaning 
You may tune into something from the past. You may tune into something from the future. Uh, it may be not local to space, meaning that you may tune into something happening right now, but it's at a distance. You know, we have this ability to tune in beyond the the limits of our, our skull and the limits of our, you know, sight and hearing. So it really facilitates that in the shamanic. So that's the shamanic aspect. And then there's the sound medicine, where just the vibrations, sound uh, is an incredible medium or whatever you want to call it, uh, sound, whatever this is, for harmonizing your body, mind, emotions. And if a practitioner is good at it, and, you know, anyone who comes to my events, you can tell for yourself, you know, I can say I'm good at it, but that means nothing <laughs> until you experience it and decide for yourself whether whether it's good. Again, this, this ties into where my teacher Sarah was said it was all about what was so important was your own healing first, your own attunement that you bring, then bring to all the instruments. You know, then what you play on the instruments, you pick up the Dusangoni and chant, you play the drum, the balls, whatever, you're bringing that attunement comes through the instruments. So even in a half an hour event that, like the half hour of actual sounding that will happen at the library, totally possible. You don't need you know, an hour and a half, two hours. But what is totally possible? What might somebody come away with that they didn't have when they walked through the library doors? Well, I've had a surprising number of people. I I, want to be clear that I, I don't make any promises and I don't make any medical claims with this. Um, all I can tell you is antidotal evidence of, of uh, you know, all the people that have come to these things. I've had many people, surprising to me, have neck, shoulder, and back pain, chronic back pain. One person had it for 25 years, and he was cured in one session. And at the time, he was taking Qigong lessons with me. I also teach Qigong. I don't know what that is. It's like Tai Chi. Oh. Tai Chi. It's a, it's a Chinese movement right okay um, you know some people call it chinese standing yoga but it's you know a standing upright moving gentle peaceful um but at the time he was taking classes with me so i saw him a week later and two weeks and then three weeks later every week i asked him how's your back and he said it was still fine so it it, it lasted for at least three weeks i haven't seen him since then but he told me he had chronic back pain from an injury 25 years old. He had been to massage therapists, chiropractors. He practiced yoga himself. Nothing worked. He came to my event. He said he was sitting there, and he he had a different experience with the first part of what I was doing, where he actually went into, you know, the waking dream world. He met an old friend that he had a falling out with years ago, met that friend, was able to speak to them and create... Um, healing between them, at least for himself, in this vision that he was having. And so then that passed, and he said then his back pain came up again. And it was just really annoying him, and he thought, I don't know if I can stay here. I might have to get up and leave. He said, I then picked up the flute, and I was playing the flute, and I hit a note, and that note was like a bullet that shot into him. And he said, for a moment, it was this excruciating, sharp pain in my back. And then he heard a pop and he felt a pop. And the pain was gone. And it was gone for 
at least weeks afterwards. He said in 25 years he has not had been pain-free for that amount of time. I've had, I mean, I could spend you another hour telling you neck, back, shoulder injury stories that people tell me from one session where they have incredible relief. And that then carries on. It doesn't come back the next morning. Um, why is that? What is happening? I, again, I believe that what's happening is the sound and the sound in the right hands can really bring you your whole mind, body, emotions into a state of harmony where then your body heals itself. Most of these back wounding shoulder injuries are injuries where people know they were in a car accident or something or whatever happened where there was a clear injury. Some of them were, I've, you know, broke vertebrae in their neck or back and they've healed. And, you know, thanks Western medicine for doing all they could to, you know, keep them from being paralyzed and allowing their broken neck to heal or whatever. But then there's still a trauma that's held in the body that doesn't show up on x-rays. The bones are healed, you know, the muscles move, um, but there is trauma still held in the emotional body, you know, from an accident. It's pretty traumatic. I've never been in a, a serious car accident. can only imagine. Um, and the sound has an amazing way of uh, taking you to a place where that can be released. Well, I know there is a doctor who's just recently died, Sarno, S-A-R-N-O, who had um, a very (laughs) controversial practice with back injury patients where he did focus on exactly what you said, Uh Um, you know, not the physical, but the mental and the relationship there. And he had many followers, I guess you'd call them, who said, you know, it had worked for them. But I even had someone last year... I, I teach at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck. It's the largest holistic health center in America. And I've been teaching there for 20 years as core faculty, teaching Tai Chi, Qigong classes, doing events, concerts, um, doing other special classes. I'll do, and I'll do my shamanic sound medicine events there. And one of the things I do is special classes for R&R people. Some people just go there as R&R guests where they don't take specifically take workshops, but they're just there on retreat, so then they can take these optional classes, and, and, I'll, and I'll do them. Just It'll be just like what I'm doing Sunday, or Saturday, Saturday the 16th at the library. Um, it'll be, when I do them there, it's a one-hour thing. I talk for a bit, then I do a half an hour uh, sound medicine. I had someone last year who had Parkinson's disease, and it was noticeable. My, my dad had it, so I was very aware when I saw him that he had it. and um, And he was there for most of a week. I saw him two days after the event. He said, Rich, can I tell you what my experience? And sure, you know, I always like to hear their experience. He um, talked about what happened for him during the experience. And he said, then when I got up and I walked out, I was symptom-free for the first time in three years. I've been on medicines for three years now, and I have symptoms. It affects my ability to move. It affects my way of thinking. I walked out of here And my thinking was clear. My body moved in ways it hasn't moved in years. I said, I I did not have my symptoms of Parkinson's for the entire rest of the day. And that was from 11 o'clock in the morning until he went to bed at 11 at night. Now, the next morning he got up and they had returned. But just from one session, one half-hour sound session, and he also said he felt during the session, he felt vibration 
in energy, uh, you know, presence, something moving in his head, in the part of his brain, somewhere in the lower back part. I don't remember which part it is now, but there's a part that creates dopamine, which, you know, if you have Parkinson's, you're not getting the dopamine you need. And he felt the sound stimulating that part of his brain. So, Well, I'm so sorry we're out of time, but maybe we could close with just one more wonderful sound from you, and we'll just leave it hanging in the air until the, the podcast is over, because yeah, okay. it would just be a great note to end on. Just hit the balls and let them ring what, out? Whatever you think would be a good <clears throat> fi- finale. Yeah, let me... Uh... Rich is now positioning different bowls. He's got one in his left hand, and he's a, he's a large man, tall, and he's got a long arm. He's got one on his lap, and I think he's reaching for a mallet. No, he's reaching for a third bowl. Third bowl. Okay. This will be a three bowl. And setup. I am going to use, you know, no voice. I'm just going to listen, and we're going to just have it hang in the air until the end of the podcast. So thank you so much for having me well, come. Thank you. This has been great. Yeah. Oh, and, and I, I, I have to say, I am going to be teaching a catalog course at Omega next year. That's a huge different level of it for me to be teaching there. So it'll be in the catalog. You'll be able to actually come for a weekend workshop and experience and study, you know, not so much study as a practitioner, but actually have a weekend of healing medicine with the shamanic sound medicine. So thank you. Thank you again. (laughs) You're welcome.